I think they're going to put the scripture up on the platform or up on the um, screen. I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to read from uh, John chapter 4. It's the story of the woman at the well, which I imagine many of you have probably read this passage many times. You're very familiar with it. So I'm actually not going to deal with a lot of the details of the text. Rather, I want to go in a, in a slightly different direction. You guys got it? So I'm going to read it from my iPhone, and it's a little tough for an old guy like me to actually feel like I'm actually doing something spiritual when I've got my iPhone in front of me, <laughs> okay? But you can follow it on the screen. It's hopefully, it's the same version. I'm reading from the English Standard uh, uh, Version. <coughs> now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples uh, than John... Although Jesus himself actually didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, or Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samar Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is asking you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right when you're in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are now, that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship, that is the Jews, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God, this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. 
And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to him, said to her, I am he. God's word. Let's bow before we uh, come to the word this morning. <coughs> Father, as we come to this place to worship, we come to confess our sins, to repent, to experience the truth of grace once again, to draw closer to you, to try to give you the, the honor and praise and the glory that you are due. But even as we come, Lord, we come hoping to hear from you, that you would speak to us. And these few minutes that we have together, Lord, we pray that you would speak from your word to us. Whatever word, uh, words this servant uses, Lord, we pray that that which is really from you would enter our hearts and our minds. And that which is not, that, word, that the words would merely fall to the ground. Lord, open our hearts to you. Help us to listen to your voice this morning. Surely some come this morning with pain in their hearts. Many of us come painfully aware of our own sins, our faults, our, our shortcomings. And we seek to experience forgiveness once again. We seek to know that you love us just as we are. And we ask, Lord, that by coming here and by participating in a, a community like Rooted, that we might be transformed, that we might bring honor and glory to you throughout our entire lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what I want, uh, what I want to do is basically, um, and it's interesting, the one brother talked about if he lost his ability to think, he'd be devastated. Uh, uh, I, I was sharing with the, 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 the couple that I was sitting with, a couple of the gals I was sitting with. I think if I lost my ability to speak, you know, I would be devastated. And I find my identity in my ability to communicate, preach, you know, you know, this catalyst business, coaching people, that kind of thing. If I, if I didn't have that, who would I be? You know, I, well, I, I don't think I would be totally devastated because of what the Lord has, has done in my life. But many people, really, if if they lost that one thing, their identity is in their work, or their identity is in their position, or their identity is in their, their beauty, although that may be fleeting. Their identity is the power that they have, or the money they have, or whatever. If that was taken away, would we have anything left? It's a really interesting question, I think, to ask. So here's what I want to do is, as we kind of work through this passage. I'm not going to go verse by verse, but I'll, but I'll, I'll take, it to you as, as, take you to it as much as I can. But I want to actually try to ask and answer three questions. The first is this, who was this woman? Who was she? The second thing I want to ask and talk about is, what was driving her life? And the third, what really happened at the well? So what I, what I want you to do, if you will, is I want you to think with me, okay? I want you to think about this woman. I want you to think about the interaction with Jesus. And hopefully through it, we'll learn a little bit more about the gospel and perhaps a little bit more about Jesus himself. So who, who was she? Who, who was this woman? Um, the, uh, the first thing we learned about her is that she was the, a despised person from a despised race and of a despised gender. It says that she came at the sixth hour. Do you know what time of day that is? 
roughly noon. They, the, the Jews counted the days, counted the hours from dawn, you know, throughout the day, you know, that sort of thing. So she comes at noon in the midst of the heat of the day. She's alone. By the way, when would women normally, and by <laughs> women did most of the water carrying uh, in those days, I, as I think it still is in much of rural Africa, but, but, uh, but when would the women usually come to draw water? In the morning, okay? Not in the middle of the day, not when it's hottest. But so she comes at noon, and she comes uh, in, in the heat of the day, and she's alone. I think, I think we can see a number of things, you know, in, w- within that. She came when no one else was there, largely because I think she was considered to be a disreputable person. She'd had five husbands, and the one she's living with now, she's not even married to. You know, not highly regarded. In fact, when you, uh, later on, I'll, I'll take you to verse 42, uh, you know, kind of as we close. But one of the things you see there is you see kind of the attitude that the village people had toward her. So back in, in 42, it says, although we believed at first because of what you said, now we believe because we've seen him, not because of you. So e- even though she's changed, I think, in this text, she still has taint you know, of, of being despised by, by the community. So she was a despised person. Secondly, she was f- from a despised race. She was a Samaritan. You saw that little clause in the text that the Jews don't really have anything to do with Samaritans. Samaritans were essentially half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half from the old pagan, pagan nations. We, do we need to share? Good. she was from a despised race. Okay, she was a Samaritan. She was considered a half-breed, unclean. Jews had nothing to do with them, uh, and they, wouldn't de- they definitely would not take food from them or, uh, or, or, or drink water uh, you know, from them. But they, they worshipped, their, their, their religion was syncretistic. So she raised this whole question about you Jews worship on one mountain, we worship on another. But what they'd done is, is, is they'd, they'd combine the old traditional religion with Christianity or, or with, uh, with Judaism. So it was kind of a, a, a mixture. So, and, and so Jews didn't have anything to do with them whatsoever. The third thing was she was of a despised gender. I know that some of the things I am, I'm saying, actually kind of in the introduction here, may sound a little harsh. I don't mean to be harsh. But, but I, I, want, I want you to listen to the words of a prayer that I've been told many Orthodox Jewish men still pray to this day. But throughout history, it was a, pray, it was a prayer that they prayed every morning. Listen to it. Thank you, Lord, that I am not a slave, not a Gentile, and not a woman. Those were actually progressively worse. Slave, Gentile, woman. The attitude toward women was deplorable at, 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 that, at that time. But here Jesus is talking to a woman. You know, they, the women actually figure very prominently in, in Jesus' ministry. And I believe it's largely because of Jesus 
that, the, that the, the view of women has been elevated. So that today, if we don't think of them as co-equal, we're really wrong. We're not, we're not really in, in line with, with Scripture. But, but Jesus kind of changes the paradigm of, 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 of that society. So she was a despised person, disreputable. She was a de- from a despised race and of a despised gender. And yet, you know, she, he's talking to her. The second thing we learn about her is that she was proud, skeptical, and very intelligent. Uh, in verse 9 uh, we, we, that, that I read just a moment ago, I read kind of resentment. You know, a, a different way to describe this would be street smart, okay? So she probably didn't have any uh, advanced degree. She hadn't been to varsity or post-grad or didn't have a doctorate or, or any of those kinds of things. But let, let me pick up verse 9. You got it up there, Carlo? No? Okay. If you will, can you just kind of keep it up on the screen? Verse 9, uh, let me go back. So the Samaritan woman is responding to him in, in relation to this request. And I read this verse as if she had a sneer in her voice. How is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She was proud. In essence, what she's saying in, in, that, in that basement, or in, in that statement, is essentially, uh, you think you're better than I am. She's not accepting that, Okay. She's, she's interacting with him very directly, very boldly. This would not be normally how a woman would, 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 act, would, would react to a man or let alone a Jewish person who was supposedly had a superior uh, rank, rank in society. But I see that kind of sarcasm or that you know, kind of an aggressive stance in that. But she was also skeptical. If you look at verse 11, go down to there. Uh, and again, she's responding to this idea about living water. And she says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw. What do you mean talking to me about water that you give me that would give me, you know, that would well up to, to, to eternal life? You don't have anything to draw, and the, and the well is deep. And then basically what she says is, who do you think you are? You think you're better than our father Jacob who dug this well? You know, who is the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you think you're better than one of the patriarchs of our faith? I mean, she's, she, she's really going after him. But she's skeptical. She doesn't believe uh, any of it. And then she responds, all right, then give it to me. See if you can deliver. Okay, you don't have, have anything to draw, but so, so, so give it to me. Third thing there, she's really intelligent. Uh, and that's revealed by, by, I think, by a number of different things. One is, as soon as he kind of bores in on her life and, and he says, go get your husband, he already knows that she's had five husbands, and she's, she's living with a guy that's not her husband now. But, but as, she, as he begins to bore in on her life, what does she do? She tries to deflect him. She tries to get him off tra- track. So here's, here's Jesus, the rabbi, and she's trying to take him a different direction. And uh, immediately she introduces controversy. It's a funny thing as you're, as you're interacting with people about the gospel, about Jesus, you begin talking about these things, the first thing that most non-Christians will do is they'll try to get you sidetracked. Okay, well, you know, and they'll raise some question, you know, try to get you off track, to try to get you away. Well, she's smart enough to do that. But also, if you, if you reflect on that a little bit, she'd had five husbands. One way or another, she'd gotten five men to marry her. Okay? She, she probably had been beautiful. Now, she may not be so beautiful now. 
and she's got one living with, him, living with her now, and she's not even willing to get married to this guy. So she's smart. She's sharp. She may not have the formal education, but, but, uh, but she is smart. And by the way, as you interact with poor people within the society, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that they're stupid. They may not have had the education. They may be ignorant about certain things. But a lot of people out there are really smart. They're really sharp. And you make a, you, you make a real mistake if you underestimate them or you think that they can't think. The third thing we learn about her, and this is in ver- verse uh, 15. Let me try to scroll down there. <coughs> she says there, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. I might be reading more into this than, than maybe what I should, but I don't think so. I think what we read in that verse, and in fact in some of the other interactions, was her weariness, her discouragement in life. I've got to come every day to draw water at noon when none of the other women are here because they despise me, they don't care about me, they gossip about me. I'm coming back again and again and again. I would love to have that misery alleviated. I would love to have this kind of miraculous thing where I have just, you know, all the water, all the water that I need. So, so I, I think we learn about her disappointment with life. In fact, with all the husbands. You know, she had one and then another and then another and another. Why? Likely because each one had disappointed her. Each one had not fulfilled her hopes and dreams. You know, um, she wanted somebody to love her, to care for her, to accept her as she was, probably to provide for her. And women had a hard time uh, existing on their, on their own in, in, in that society. So she, I think she's emotionally discouraged. And I think she's close to have, have giving up hope because she hasn't married the one now, okay? Each one is disappointed, and now, and now I'm not even going to bother getting married. Because I don't think that he'll ever fulfill. So it's kind of a cynicism. It's, it's, a, it's a negative view of life. Now, um, what's interesting, I think, about you know, how many preachers have, apl- have approached this text is that many times the emphasis is on the dissimilarities between this woman, woman and us. And actually, I want to suggest that we are really not very much unlike this woman. We're probably more like her than what we may think. And we may, we may have... Means most of you, you know, are not abjectly poor. So you, have, you, I assume most of you probably came here in cars today. You're wearing nice clothes. You have Apple, you know, uh, equipment and and all those kinds of things. So you may be in a slightly different status of life, but internally, we're really very similar. She wanted the same things we all want. Now I've done ministry now on six continents. That sounds kind of cool, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, but but in, in all the places that I've that I've traveled. I find that people are actually almost exactly alike. The cultural wrappings are slightly different, you know, in different languages and maybe different ways of thinking things. But bottom line, people are basically the same. They want the same things. What do they want? They want somebody to love them, and they want to be able to love someone. They want to raise their children in relative security, and they'd love to to be able to provide a better life for their children than than what they have, than than what they themselves have had. They want to they make a difference in the world. They want their lives to have meant something. Uh, that's pretty much what everybody shares. By the way, that's one of the, that's one of the reasons I, I find the more I've been reading 
about World War I, World War II, and some of the other conflicts you know, in, in the last century. I find it so incredible to believe that we've come to the point at which soldiers are literally killing one another. Because usually it's just the rulers, it's the power people that want the conflict. But when the guys are shooting at each other from one trench to another, uh, and I, I think there was this one moment uh, at Christmas time during World War I, when they literally came out of the trenches and, and they sang Christmas carols together. And who were they dealing with? They were dealing with a real person that has a wife or hopes of a wife, children. They were the same as us. And so why are we taking one another's lives? You know, physical conflict is really nuts. It, it really, it really is, is an awful thing. Because really, we're all alike. Are you having problems with this? <coughs> so let me ask you, what was driving her life? What was driving her life? Uh, let, me, let me ask it in, a, in kind of a different way. What was it that she thought, I'm not going to actually ask you, ask you to answer verbally, but what was it that she thought would make her life work? So this is kind of the opposite, the converse of the question that, that One asked you at, at the beginning. I think she thought that if she could only find the right man, that life would, that life would be perfect. You know, uh, and this is how we're very much like her. Most of us, even many times after we've become Christians, are still driven by something. We think that, you know, we have kind of false idols that oftentimes take us off track. But, but we come to the, to the point, of, uh, point at which we think, if I could only get this or whatever it is, then my life would work. Now, New Yorkers are kind of a weird sort. You know, they're, they're kind of odd people in certain ways. They're kind of the extreme of, of America in, in one sense. But, but New Yorkers, if you look at their lives, you see that they're really driven by idols, false idols. If I can only get the PhD, I'll have the credibility that I want, I'll be able to teach in the university, you know, I'll be highly regarded, that sort of thing. If I can only become the first chair of violinist in the Brooklyn Philharmonic, if I could only become the lead in the Broadway play, if I could only make it on Wall Street and really become that really wealthy investment banker, if I could gain the political power, if, if I could, what, whatever, th whatever that is, they're driven by those idols. And the problem, you know, with false idols, or the problem with any kind of idol, because all idols by definition are false, the problem with them is that even if you gain it, even if you get it, you get to the top, what's there? Nothing. You can be worth $4 billion, and, and actually money will not bring you happiness. Yes, you can fly on a helicopter from here to the airport if you want or those kinds of things, but so what? That's not where the essence of life is found. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't uh, uh, fulfill the deep need that we have to feel like we are loved and to be significant. There's no significance ultimately found those. Now, don't get me wrong. It's nice to have money and it's nice to get the PhD and it's nice to have power and, and all those kinds of things, but, but, but if that's what's driving your life, you'll find that they are literally empty. She thought, if I could only find this right guy. You know, um, uh, a lot of times in, in, in uh, the Redeemer circles, Redeemer's filled with singles. I think it's still 79% single. And many of them really feel like, if I could only find the right mate, the right woman or the right man, that that would actually, you know, make it all work. But, uh, but uh, uh, you know, I don't think there is ultimately that right man or that right woman. In one sense, we all believe in a gospel, okay? Um, it's not the gospel of Jesus often, but we believe in a gospel. I remember when I was in my first year of university, 
I believed in the American gospel, okay? So the American gospel is this. I, I was training to be a lawyer. I was going to be a high-priced attorney, okay? I was going to make a lot of money. I was going to ma- marry a beautiful wife, and we were going to live happily ever after, okay? That's the American gospel in, 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 in one sense, or, or, or a form of it. I did marry a beautiful woman, you know, but the rest of it didn't pan out. <laughs> but we all, we all have gospels. Uh, the other night, uh, I was sitting with a couple of guys, uh, a number of guys that are in a Bible study uh, with Luke, in Lukpin. And I was telling the, the story of a, of a jaded uh, Jewish accountant uh, that lives out on Long Island. And he literally hated life. But he had a gospel. He had created a business enterprise that was promising to yield about $2 million of income per month. $24 million a year. And, uh, and, and uh, that, that was his gospel. His gospel was he was going to get all this money. He and his wife were going to travel the world. And they were big time bird watchers. They were birders. Okay. <laughs> so they were going to go to Thailand. And they were going to go to Zambia. And they were going to go to all these places, you know, to take pictures of birds. You know, th- this, that was their gospel, you know. And, and Howard had to actually let go of that idol when he, when he, when he, when he came to Christ. But, but we all have gospels. And it's, it's interesting that Sometimes we're not really aware of the Gospels that we, that, that we really believe in. But this woman, I think, her Gospel was finding the right man. That's what would make it work. And she'd been disappointed time and again, time and again. A year ago, I was sitting in a, a service, about a year ago, I was sitting in a service at a new church in Brussels, in Belgium. There was a woman there that morning, um, and what was a pretty amazing is, I think she actually believed in Christ that morning. But several years before that, I think it was three years before that, her husband had died prematurely. I think they were in their early 50s. Uh, and her husband had died, I, I don't know exactly what it was, but about a year or so after his death, she felt like she just couldn't go on anymore. Evidently, their relationship had, had probably been really, really good. She felt like she couldn't go on anymore, and so she threw herself out of a 10-story window. But she didn't die. Now, she hurt herself pretty badly. But she didn't die. But she came to the places that if it, the husband was taken away and so there was no longer anything to go on for. It was really amazing to hear her actually come in contact with the gospel and find a new, uh, a, a new reason to live. Um, I think an interesting uh, con- uh, thing about, to me about this woman at the well is that her life, her, her, her concern was not in the life hereafter. Even though J- Jesus mentioned eternal life, she, w- she w- really wasn't concerned about heaven or the eternal state or, or the future. She was concerned about here and now. And I don't want to downplay the, the importance of being concerned about everlasting life, escape from the judgment, those kinds of things. I think we need to be concerned. But most people are actually concerned about now. I want to make my life work now. And, and the, tr- the, the truth of the gospel is the gospel can not only give you everlasting life, but it can actually change your experience in this life right now, no matter what your, what, what your circumstances are. And the irony for, for her and for all of us is that the, 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 the truth is the things of earth will never really satisfy. And we've got to be careful by, by, from, to keep from being deluded by kind of the false uh, messages that are given uh, in our society. Um, so Jesus describes... The water I give to him, or her, if you will, as, as a water that will quench the thirst deep within the human heart. Water that will become in us a spring welling up to eternal life. I think, I think he's describing a life that's actually full of joy. 
and it's also, it, it's also, uh, also eternally. But the gospel is a good news about eternal life. Just as John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that we might, that whosoever believed in him might have everlasting life, et- e- eternal life. Uh, th- that is a truth, and we can never let, let that go. But we need to be careful to, to that uh, as we communicate, that we only talk about that and not talk about now. So what happened at the well? Je- Jesus is interacting with this, with this woman. I, and I, let, me, let me just step away from it just a minute. But Jesus is talking to a woman. He's talking to a Samaritan. And when the disciples come back, and I didn't read this part of the text, but when the disciples come back, they're literally aghast. What in the world are you doing talking to this woman? You know, they're, they're in disbelief. But the character of Jesus is this. He doesn't care about whether you're a woman or a Gentile or a slave or what race you're from or what level of society you're in, if you're in the untouchable society uh, class in, in India or whatever. He cares about us. He cared about this woman individually. He didn't care whether she was a, a, a Samaritan. She didn't, he didn't care that, that, she, that she was pretty aggressive as, as she talked with him. He wasn't offended. Because he's, he, he's going at her because he wants her to experience the only thing, the true love of the Father, that can actually change your life. So what happens at, 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 at the well? Or let me even ask another question. What is the gospel? In this text, what is the gospel? Do you remember how it ended? How, how our, 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 our reading ended? You know, she says, I know when Messiah comes. You know, he will reveal all things. And what's he say? Does he say, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray the sinner's prayer. Okay, I want you to invite Christ into your life. You know, that kind of thing. He, does, he, doesn't, he doesn't do anything formulaic. What is his answer? I who speak to you am he. In one sense, if you want to try to define the gospel, and it's, it's always a little bit difficult to put it this way, but the gospel is essentially Jesus, okay? That, 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 that really is the gospel. So he is offering himself to her as the true husband. You're looking for the husband? Let me tell you, I'm the true husband. I'm, I, I am the thing. I am the one that you are looking for. Personally, I, I never really like summaries of the gospel, um, and uh, I think that oftentimes they just don't say enough. But I don't know how to communicate the gospel in any other way than somehow to summarize the truths that come together. So in New York, um, Ke- Tim Keller actually kind of stole a version, uh, an expression of the gospel from a movement that was led by Jack Miller. But here's, here's how we often will state the gospel in New York and because it applies existentially to where most New Yorkers are. <coughs> but here, here's the way it goes. You are more sinful and flawed than what you've ever dared to believe. You're actually much worse than what you think you are, okay? Yet, you can be more loved and accepted than what you've ever dared to hope. You can experience a greater intimacy, a greater satisfying fulfillment than what you've ever dared to hope because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Um, that is, we, all of us, are probably more like the woman at the well than what we think. Again, let me take a little aside. 
I think oftentimes shame, personal shame, keeps us from Christ. You know, my guess is, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but my, my guess is that probably more than one woman in this room has been raped. Can you, can you, can you come to Christ? C- can you be, be uh, accepted by him if you've been violated? Some of the men in this room may have actually perpetuated a rape or, or have, have, have done that. You know, we may come with, with all kinds of things that we're deep inside we are deeply ashamed of and we hope that no one ever finds out about them. No matter who you are or how much you've failed in life or, or what's been done to you, the message of this text is that you are acceptable and will be accepted and not merely be accepted, you will literally be reached out to by Jesus to be drawn in close to him. We need to be careful about shame because it, because it keeps us. Uh, no one is not acceptable in the, in, in, in the eyes of God. Um, here's the reality that we preach. Jesus is willing to receive anyone that will come to him. No life is too far gone. No person is too far gone. No one is actually unworthy enough. We're all unworthy, actually. But no one is unworthy enough. No one has done so much that there can't be forgiveness. There's hope for everyone. And again, not just for eternal life, but actually for a changed life right now. About a year ago, um, uh, my daughter, um, who is now a woman in her own right, so my kids are just about 40, 38, and 36, if that gives you a little context. Uh, By the way, I was up in Lusaka the other day. We were meeting with a group of pastors up there, and and, uh, one of the guys was talking about a man in the church, uh, and he said an elderly man. And I said, well, how old was he? 43? <laughs> oh, I'm a little bit older than 43. So now, now I know who I am. I, I am elderly. It, it was funny, a, a couple years ago, I was getting a new passport, I had, so I had to take a new picture or whatever, and, and, um, and I was having to fill out the thing, and what, what color is your hair? So I asked my granddaughter, <coughs> who was five, old, uh, five years old at this point, what, you know, what color is Papa's hair? And I've always put brown because that's what it was. She said, oh, it's gray. Oh, I mean, that, that, you know, that is really a r- reality. But a, about a year ago, my, my, my uh, sister brought a woman uh, to church, to the church that we often go to uh, when, I'm, when I'm home. And this woman is from an exceedingly wealthy family, literally that has millions and millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and, but she's a woman that has really wasted all of the advantages that, she, that she's had in life. She's a, she, at that point, she was really addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs. She'd been throwing it all away. And as Rebecca was dealing with her on kind of a week-to-week basis, and she was part of a little group that Rebecca had organized. We were reading some book together and talking about it. And, of course, Rebecca was trying to, to expose her to the gospel. But she really felt so ashamed of who she was. She really believed that no one could ever love her. And her, her husband, who was cheating on her at that point, I think cheating on her probably because how, because how messed up emotionally w- she was. Every time he came home, she's laid out drunk on, uh, on the couch, that kind of thing. It's not, it's not a pretty sight. But she came to church, and she heard the gospel that day. And she responded. Because she came to believe that she was actually acceptable. So this woman comes. She has no right to believe that she would be accepted. And Jesus offers himself. So let me take you to that 42nd verse. Uh, Carl, you probably don't have it, which is, which is okay. But let me take you back to that. 
So this is kind of the end. I think we have every reason to believe that she came to Christ that day, that she believed in the gospel, that, that she, she was a believer. She goes back to the village, and she is telling everybody about him. I think I found the Messiah. They all come out to him and begin, begin to talk to him. And then in verse actually 39, 40, 40, 41, and then 42, let me just read what happens there. Oops, I'm not there yet. <coughs> so many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of the word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this in is indeed the Savior of the world. I think that those few verses indicate, give us a reason to believe, that she really became a believer. But I want you to note this, and I'm, I already alluded to it. Her status within that society doesn't change. She's still despised. So the reality is when we come to Christ, not, not everything is, is different. Fundamentally, everything is different. But actually, we're still going to have to struggle with opinions and problems and those, and those kinds of things. But this gospel, this gospel of Jesus Christ, can actually change who you are in God's eyes and actually transform you within this life. If you've never believed in Christ, if you've never kind of opened the door, I would really encourage you to, to literally consider believing in Christ and becoming a child of his. There's a verse later on in, in, uh, in, in uh, or actually earlier in, in the Gospel of John. is John 1.12. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right of power to become children of God, sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. It's actually as simple as that, but it's also as difficult as that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you chose to love us. Though our parents were incredibly re rebellious, they turned away from you. And because of it, all of us have been rebels ever, ever since. And even now, Lord, even those of us who believe, we still fall short. We still turn away. We turn to false idols rather than to looking to you for our ultimate fulfillment. We ask, Lord, that, that you would, would continue to demonstrate your love to us. Help us, Lord, to see how much you love us, how much you have accepted us how your grace is really new every day. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in the reality of that despite the circumstances of our lives. Lord, live in us, live through us as we try to communicate this reality to others that are around us, that others might come to have the hope and the joy and the meaning that you can offer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.